This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with coach and coach developer, Jamie Taylor. He discusses his process as a coach developer and some of his thoughts around this industry, how he takes academic content and puts it into a practical perspective, as well as some of his work at Leicester Tigers and the Wasp Academy. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, Jamie, really appreciate you uh, scheduling a second appointment with me after I, I missed our last one. But how are things your end? All OK? No, thanks for having me, Michael. really appreciate it. So, um, and no problem at all. Perfect. So, for people that don't know you, haven't come across your work, could you just explain for everyone, I guess, who you are and, and what you do? Yeah, so and look, we were actually just chatting a little bit, uh, a bit offline, just about the the the, the what a privilege pri- privilege it is to do the jobs that we do. But um, I am, I, I split my role in three ways really. One is uh, I'm an assistant professor at uh, Dublin City University, where uh, we uh, we run a professional doctorate program, and uh, I, I supervise people who are working in high performance sports, uh, number uh, lots of different areas, and uh, we've also got a couple of interesting research projects we're going with uh, different sporting bodies. Um, I work as a coach developer at uh, Grey Matters, where again, I've got um, the real privilege of working with lots of interesting people across sport and helping coaches develop their practice. And the uh, and my third uh, my th- the third string, or I suppose the, the third area I work is I'm a, uh, I'm a coach at uh, what is now called Midlands Academy Central and used to be called uh, Wasps, uh, Wasps Academy. Perfect. Yeah, we won't go too much into the Wasp Academy stuff. Obviously, the, the fortunes of the club, which is really unfortunate. And actually one a little bit after my own heart. So when I was at QPR as a schoolboy, uh, Wasps and QPR used to train in the same thing. So I remember Trevor Leota flipping tyres and seeing Joe Worsley walking out and be like, geez, look at the size of these guys. So yeah, definitely an unfortunate one seeing, seeing, seeing what happened to them. But I think really nice breadth of experience and loads of stuff that we can, we can get onto. Um, in terms of, I guess, let's start with the the lecturing role, if you like, or the supervisor role. Um, firstly, what what drew you to that? What what drew you to kind of being in and around that space? So I think um, uh, I don't know. Let's say if we go back uh, ten or fifteen years, where I am uh, a coach who's really enjoying uh, getting to know practice. And when I say getting to know it, I wasn't really getting to know it. I was just accumulating experience. Um, I was getting stuck into more and more reading and going, right, okay, so I'm hearing lots of different things. I'm getting lots of ideas from lots of places. But there was a real desire for me to start understanding coaching better and not just at the the type of surface level that we might get if we start reading blogs, if we start doing this. I started reading more and more research papers. I started going, all oh, right, okay, there's actually some really useful stuff in here. There are some really useful ideas that I can take and I can apply to my practice. Um, and um, had, a, a, by chance, um, managed to connect with somebody who was, had, a really, had a really formative effect on my, my whole life, really, which is my one of my current bosses, uh, Professor Dave Collins. And... Um, uh, and from there, uh, enrolled into a, a PhD program um, 
uh, finished my PhD three years ago at, uh, at Edinburgh, looking at effectively lots of different ideas from talent development coaching, sports psychology, uh, and ultimately how those things uh, and how those uh, and how we might support somebody to develop a level of expertise. Um, and uh, really, really pleased that I ended up uh, following that road because I think it's uh, lots of people. I think lots of people look at say the, the the term academic is often used in a negative way, and I I think often people miss out on, on really understanding what the, the value it, it has to offer people. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting space. So we've had some former guests on here, like uh, Megan Hill, who has done work around RAE and that with uh, Sean Cummins from the University of Bath. We've also had Tom Brown on from a cricket perspective, who was looking at um, South Asian talent ID in cricket and some some uh, challenges there. So I guess the question for me around that is, how do you, how do people going through that process actually come up with some interesting topics to discuss because I imagine there's certain parts of academia that have been really well thought out now and you know have probably been discussed to the to the hundredth degree but how do they begin to or how do you begin begin to come to a point of going actually we think that this is a really interesting avenue to go down and it may have practical implications for coaches for coach developers for athletes further down the road well I suppose um I probably come at it from a slightly different angle in that because I'm in practice and because I see what the, the challenges of practice are, a lot of the, uh, I suppose, a lot of the avenues I chase are coming more from a practical lens than they are from an academic lens of, right, we've investigated this and now we see further opportunity to, let's say, uh, look at relative age in a different population. And um, because I'm, I suppose, because I'm in it, I start seeing more practical problems and more practical questions and uh and look there's a the way that i would describe that is by being a pracademic which is somebody who is a, has a foot in both camps but also is significantly influenced by both and it becomes uh, less a question of what is what's the literature currently chasing and more uh, here are some practical problems how do we understand this and how might we go about investigating this so, uh, and as, as far as I'm concerned, particularly for, particularly in the field of coaching, um, it, there are so, so many interesting questions to chase that uh, so far I, I, haven't, um, I, I haven't really come across many issues of formulating those kinds of questions. The bigger problems become with how do you formulate a robust evidence base against them, less so uh, finding the questions because every, every coach everywhere knows there's plenty of questions to be asked. Yeah, I think the research pitch is interesting as well in terms of actually how do you get academia that can support it or challenge it or, or whatnot, which obviously in that space is necessary. Um, from your perspective, what springs to mind immediately of some questions that you know might be worth investigated or currently are investi being investigated that interest you? Yeah, what around that space do you think are some interesting topics? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so at, at one for me, uh, a couple of different really interesting areas, I think. One is at the moment, um, uh, historically, if I look back over coach education, coach development, we have tended to focus on discrete areas of practice and also quite discrete ways in which we might develop coaches. So um, if I am a developing coach, um, I might look at uh, a series of competencies or a series of knowledges that I might want to develop as a coach. Um, and the presumption being that if I know this, 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 and this, 
well, I might be a better coach. And I think there's a different way to look at it. And the expert has looked at it slightly differently in going, what are the types of cognitive challenges that uh, the most expert coaches have to navigate? And what is it that enables them to be able to navigate those challenges? And that's almost a slightly, it's a subtly different way of looking at it, but it has a really big practical and meaningful impact. Because if you understand what is what are, uh, what are expert coaches doing in their day-to-day -day practice, and therefore how do you help somebody develop uh, develop these types of, um, uh, let's say we'll call it um, ability to make sense of problems, uh, and the ability of a coach to flexibly execute against their plans. Um, this, it flips coach education, coach development on its head completely, and enables coaches to work with a more um, uh, towards something that's a little bit more valid in their practice than I need to acquire all this knowledge and then I just need to do something with that knowledge. Okay, so I'm going to try and decipher what I think that means and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think historically in, in the uh, coach uh, development space or courses that I've been on, you might look at particular strategies or tactics to use in a game and go, well, actually, if they're playing a 4-4-2, you could go to a 4-3-3 or something like that. Whereas what I'm hearing you say potentially is that actually if you can work on the individual's ability to analyse and analyse what's happening in the game, focusing on the analytical skills is more paramount for them than actually having a knowledge base of loads of tactics and stuff because it's about understanding and analysing what's happening in the game and you're working on the analytical piece rather than just going, well, you know all the formations now, so you should be able to use it. Well, I suppose in part, but let's put it like this. So uh, let's say I'm watching you coach and you flip from a 4-3-3 to a 4-4-2. Um, I might have the best analytic skills in the world, but I have absolutely no basis from which to understand why you've done that because I don't know your game enough. So it's a bit of both. It's a, I need to know enough to be able to go, yeah, okay, I understand why you might do this, why you might not do that. But the bigger thing is, let's say, um, what I want to be able to do is understand in this context here now, what are the factors that help me understand why I might move 433 to 442? And uh, let's say in the academy context, why am I doing that? Is it because I'm trying to win the game with what I've got now? Is it because the players in front of me, is a, there's a longer term agenda because I want this player here to be exposed to this much space? And I want him or her to be able to develop in a particular way. Um, is it because uh, there's a longer term agenda through the academy of exposing players to playing in different ways? Is it because we want to induce a bit of a developmental challenge for particular players? There's uh, that type of reasoning and those types of problems and what a coach puts into thinking about a formation change. That's probably more where I'd be coming from. And it requires both the it require, definitely, by the way, just to be clear, coaches need to know a lot. It's just how they use that knowledge is what I think is important. No, that makes complete sense. And it actually leads nicely on to my next question. So the contextualised bit is something that really interests me and something we, we get a lot in football. And it'd be interesting for you to hear this from your experience, particularly in rugby, is someone will go and look at a Pep Guardiola or a Jurgen Klopp and go, 
oh, I'm going to use those tactics or I've read an article and they do this. Not understanding that the context is key of what the current performance of players is, what's the long-term pathway, as you mentioned, what are the challenges that we're having and also where are they on their journey? Are they a first-team player that's trying to win Premier League, Champions League or are they a 13-year-old child who's trying to develop skill and understand self and a level of self-awareness, all that type of stuff. Um, so how do you get coaches to be aware of actually what good looks like in their in their context or in their environment or their stage along the journey and where they're working with individuals? Well, I, I often think, and I hear this a lot, um, that one of the risks we end up with is uh, trying to help somebody understand what good looks like. So let's we'll take the Pep example. Um, very, very clearly, one of the very best coaches in any sport in the world. Um, but if I just watch what he does and not understand why he does it, and that's what the, in, the, in academic parlance you'd call that uh, procedural knowledge, I know what he does. Declarative knowledge being I know why he's adopting that. Um, the risk is that coaches only adopt procedural knowledge, which is I can see what good is. So therefore, I do what good is instead of going right. Well, why is somebody doing this? What's most appropriate for the people, uh, the people in front of me in the context they're in? And that's the difference between a, um, a, a copy and paste approach and a let's reason from first principles, reason from uh, declarative knowledge and be able to design something that's really appropriate for the context that you're in. And from a coach developer point of view, how would you assist someone in gaining that understanding of actually this is the journey that you need to be on? And maybe actually the copy and paste model isn't isn't going to benefit you, but you know, going down this exploration piece potentially will. How do you go around framing that for them in that in that space? Well, uh, an approach that we've recently uh, we recently had a play with and actually pub uh, published the, the idea is that uh, one of the ways I now observe coaches, and it depends on the level of coach, is that uh, I've adopted an approach called the three Ps, which is effectively what you're trying to do is put yourself inside the head of the coach when you're watching them and you're going, right, why might, might, might they be doing that? First P is uh, procedure. So what, what are the ways in which they're managing the session? Typical example I'd be is, let's say, if you do a demonstration with your back to the sun with a group of uh, uh, foundation phase players, you know what's going to happen. Um, or if you do if you put, do a demonstration um, with your back to another group that are doing something very interesting, good luck focusing that group's attention on what you're trying to, to coach them. Nice, neat example. You've then got the, and I suppose that's where a lot of coach education, early coach education, perhaps rightly focuses. It becomes very competency-based. I can see this. Can the coach do this? Tick. Has the coach checked the pitch for um, dog mess, for needles, depending where you are, whatever? Tick. Yes. Okay. We then enter a world where we enter this world of maybes, if, buts, whys. Why might you do this? Why might you not? You do this. And you can split uh, the ways in which people make decisions into quicker decisions, more intuitive ones, and slower, more thoughtful ones. So when I'm observing a coach, I'd be looking at it going, right, well, when when is this decision being made here? Why might they make it be making that decision? Is it a quick, snappy one? 
or is it one that we've discussed before the session they're trying to pull a thread through the next six weeks of their coaching and off the back of that that's for me when the why start why um what so tell me what you've done why might you have done this um, what other ways could you have done it and why might you have chosen one of those different ways and probably most importantly in all of this is uh, getting at a coach's intentions what are they actually trying to achieve rather than i've seen this pep does this well actually what are you trying to achieve and why are you trying to achieve it and how I guess when we're looking at then at practice design, how do you help them, I guess, challenge in that space? Because ultimately that is, you mentioned there around, you know, is this a thread over six weeks or is this something they've just picked up then? Practice design has quite a big part to play in that in terms of if I've got a long thread over six weeks, I need to make sure that exposure is coming out of my practice. And people normally replicate what they've had exposure to be it as a player or who they work with as a coach and that's normally what informs their thinking so how do you go around helping them challenge their practice design going actually there might be a different way um that allows you to better expose that thread or expose it in a different environment that might allow them to contextualize it in you know two or three ways rather than them knowing exactly what the practice is so therefore are trying to win the practice rather than making them solve problems etc so yeah how do you go around challenging them around practice design and, and utilization in that space well i i would flip it completely and i wouldn't start with practice design um i'd always be starting with what are you trying to achieve and how do you want the player to interact with the session what do you want the player to be experiencing when they're in your session and i would work backwards from that rather than forwards from right here is practice design this is the way that i do it one of the um, one of the big things I see in football, particularly and less so in other places, is that coaches often go right. I've I've got a session here; it works really well, and I'm often left going right. Well, who does it work well for, and why does it work well? Is it because it flows, which is often how co often coaches use the idea of flow through a session um, as being a real positive. Uh, often that is low level of mistakes, players understanding things straight away. Rather than going, let's say, if I'm a player in your session, do I want your do I want my players to actively be exploring something reasonably new? Do I want them feeling safe to make lots of mistakes? Or do I want them to be refining something they can already do? Or do I want them to feel a level of pressure and almost a lack of safety? Because that's what the game confers on them ultimately. Okay, depending on that, how do I change my session design, my learning design? Because my obviously like you're doing loads of stuff that's not just on the pitch. It's how am I using huddle before a session? Um, how am I uh, who who am I chatting to before a session? How am I setting things up? What kind of goal setting process am I engaging players in? And then there's a how do I approach my session when I'm in it? Both the tools I use. Um, and almost like the uh, the emotional tone of how I am. All of those things need to be wrapped up together rather than just, hey, well, if I move, if I if I have four goals here instead of two goals, I'll be, yeah, but I don't believe in um, more than one goal. Uh, or, well, well, let's not do rondos because it's that's not what the game is. It's, I think it should be way more sophisticated than that. 
yeah, it's, I, I love the fact that you're challenging conventional wisdoms, by the way, because this is like the whole reason I started this podcast is for people like this to go, actually, have you thought about it in this way, which is which is really, really interesting. Um, so I guess, I guess for you then, how are you um, encouraging coaches to give that a go? Because traditional means would say, plan my session, figure out interactions around it, Whereas what you're suggesting here is quite a flip of going, actually, can I consider interactions? Can I consider how I'm going to act tonally? And again, that may change during session from from what you've seen, but going in, you know, I would like it to feel and sense and players to feel like this. And then I'm going to plan what that may introduce for me in terms of practice design. How do you get coaches to buy into that and have a go at that? Because I can imagine there'll be some, seven individuals out there that are thinking that I don't want to give that a go that sounds very risky well look in, in lots of ways I, I found some some of it reasonably easy because for me as a coach I need I want to understand whether I'm doing a good job at what I'm doing and if I finish a session without having intentions without being really clear about what I'm trying to achieve well what am I reflecting against what am I thinking about other than, oh, it seems to be all right. Oh, um, that bit flowed. And then, oh, I tell you what, we'll stop reflecting on me now and let's start talking about how, who, which players were good. And as soon, I think as soon as you start establishing, right, what are we trying to do here? And did we get our intent? Did we see our intended effect? Then I think you can, I think it's, a, it's almost reasonably quick buy-in for lots of coaches. Know whether they're doing a decent job but most coaches spend a lot of their time without having the ability to reason about that and think about that because they're not setting intentions in the first place i guess it to a degree as well it makes it an easier um reflection slash assessment tool right so if you, if you know if you're working on skill acquisition piece that isn't going to happen in one training session more than likely that's going to happen over a prolonged period of time in a variety of uh context for someone to be able to develop a technique or skill whereas actually if you can reflect it on my intentions or how i want the session to feel it's far easier to reflect on that because you can see it playing out or you can have dialogue with players going today i wanted it to feel pressurized or chaotic or time pressured did you sense that or you might even ask the question how did you feel in that session and see what you get back so actually, it's probably easier to reflect on that on short termism in particular than maybe going down a you know a technical tactical piece, which is probably not going to be done over a twenty minute hour and a half long session. Yeah, and and also for me, if you think about like the context that that we're both coaching in, we're not also talking about multiple coaches, um, and multiple coaches having a decent idea of what's uh, what good might look like for us in this session so if we're for example the classic one is let's say we are looking at um let's look at we're, we're trying to refine or acquire a new skill well if i don't have a view on how difficult that might be for the players and how desirably difficult i want that to be for the players then my reflection becomes either oh well i know that my practice design methods are are, are the best ones so those are the ones i'll use and uh, don't worry about um, anything else or 
Um, they did it loads and they did it really well, so they must be getting better at it, which we equally know to be untrue. So instead it's, okay, well, how difficult do I want this to be? And what's my level of, uh, what's my personal marker for? Let's say it's, and this is where, this is, you can tell now, we see where my football knowledge starts running out. Let's say it's, um, uh, I want, we're working at uh, left foot control. Well, what does good look like? And what's the bandwidth for good, bad? And because we want players to make mistakes, how many mistakes do we want them to make? And how do, what's, what is a mistake here? Is it, uh, uh, all of those things need to be wrapped up in uh, a coach's observation and the coach's understanding of what they're trying to do. You've led me really nicely onto what my next question was going to be, actually. So, obviously, for you working in this space, you're going to get a lot of individuals from a variety of sports. So, obviously, you'll, you'll have rugby, which you have really good working knowledge of. And, you know, you'll have other sports which you have, you know, good, but maybe not as, as good a rugby working knowledge. How do you go around upskilling yourself to understand that so that when you're having those interactions with coaches, you're able to provide them feedback because you, you may have someone who's water polo you've never seen in your life, but actually that could still be a really valuable interaction as long as you've got a base level of knowledge. So how do you go around finding out, I guess, some of the, the tactical, technical, whatever bits that you'll need to have a base layer of understanding within that sport? Well, one, I think it's really important to acknowledge the fact that there is no uh, there is no football coach I'm, I've ever worked with or going to work with that I'm ever going to walk in and start advising them on the tactic, technical, tactical elements of the game. And uh, I think that is just so important to recognise because in in any instance you've got to know what you know and you don't know. And I hope what comes across to any football coach here, I think I made it pretty plainly obvious that. Yeah, I can, I, I can. I watch a lot of football. I enjoy hearing other people's opinions about the game, technically, tactically. But I certainly don't know enough to be offering people like yourself or any of uh, anybody that you work with any input whatsoever on that. So I'm staying quiet. The broader principle for me is that I would see knowledge in coaching as being in four uh, four bases, if you like, broadly. Um, and this is a work of. Um, Andy Abraham and Christine Nash, where they've classified it and gone, look, there's, uh, there are, there's the sport, technically, tactically. And every coach everywhere needs to have a really in-depth understanding of their game, their sport. Two, knowledge of the person. And that's often like the, let's say, physiology, psychology, Lots of things that ologies on the end, so it's not necessarily a, a more uh, pseudo psychological thing. Where we go, oh, I know this person. It's uh, it's knowledge of the person, also some fundamental principles. Um, there is knowledge of pedagogy, science of coaching and learning, and then probably the last one, which I think is certainly, in my opinion, becoming more and more prevalent and important, is curriculum knowledge. What are the types of experiences that we want players or athletes to have as they progress? And for me, um, I might be able to offer a level of expertise in understanding the person, particularly psychologically. Um, but my main area is uh, is pedagogy, and I'm there to support a coach with their pedagogy, um, supporting them with understanding their coaching approach, their learning design, and that is my role when working with a coach. It's definitely not technical, tactical. Yeah, I think that's a really nice bit in terms of figuring out where 
where you can sit in those interactions as well. And I've been doing a little bit of coach development work internally recently, and I was very much hands off, you know, observing sessions. And someone stood out to me and go, why, why are you doing that? And I was like, what do you mean? They said, well, actually, part of the, the upside to you working in football for the last 10 years and having played it prior to that is that you will have um, a base level of being able to go in and deliver. He goes, and actually working, co-coaching with someone, delivering and analysing together and trying to get outcomes together and all that type of stuff is just as powerful as, um, you know, you standing behind and making a discussion point. And I think it really resonates with what you're saying there is actually what part of those four areas am I looking to hear or can I hear or can I assist with and being comfortable that on that day at that time, that's what I'm going to go after. And in different contexts, I'm just going to add value in a different area. So it might be with the under sevens being an extra pair of eyes to the chaos that's going on with the coaches for the under for the B team. It might be looking at pedagogy and how they're working with players with tactical implement, uh, implementation and stuff. So I think that's a really nice format of what you've discussed there. Oh, completely. And I, I, I think um, coach development has actually fallen into a bit of a trap where there is a almost a standoffish role for the coach developer where they have there is a way of doing this and i'm complete agreement with you that just as you'd expect a coach to uh, adopt different methods depending on the needs of the uh the individual athletes in front of you well coach developers should be adopting different methods based on the individual needs of the coach in front of them um now whilst i'm def i'm not going to be getting in with a football coach and demonstrating anything because that's not a skill set i've got so i'm not going to be embarrassing myself by um by doing so but um ultimately for me it just depends on what's the again coach developer coach what are your intentions for impact as a coach developer and how are you designing learning experiences for the coach and if that involves demonstrating something if it involves co-coaching then great but um there's obviously there's just much like there is adopting more directive approaches with players there are upsides and downsides to that just as there is with any any in educational interaction. And one of the bits you did mention there was around the curriculum piece. And I think uh, particularly in academies that I've worked in, curriculums are a real big part of, of who we are. You have your West Ham way, Southampton way, Tottenham way, etc. And I imagine you, you would have had similar both at, at Wasps, but also during your time um, at Leicester previously, etc. Where am I right in thinking you're academy manager at Leicester? Uh, head, head coach head coach so got it wrong but near enough um so in in that space there did you guys have uh one a curriculum and two did you have like a, a Leicester type player so was there particular characteristics that you wanted in your players that were coming through the pathway well first up I'd say there is a people use the term curriculum in lots of different ways um, and depending which sport you go to, curriculum will mean something very different. And some people, when you hear the word curriculum, they'll go, I'm not interested, go away. Um, now, so to be clear in the, in the way that I'm using curriculum, I'm everybody, every sport everywhere will have a curriculum, which is these are the experiences that players, athletes have when they're interacting with you. So curriculum is more about the experience of the player than it is anything that's written down. Uh, and there's some interesting work in education that looks at different levels of the curriculum. So there's the planned curriculum. This is what we are planning to offer. 
there's the delivered curriculum which is this is what we uh, from a, a coach's perspective this is what we have offered and um there is the experience curriculum which is the one that i'm talking about um and that often gets confused with a syllabus which is about content so um uh, is there a curriculum yes there is always one doesn't matter where you go is it a coherent one where we're lacing together different elements of an athlete's experience and that lots of people are integrated and working towards something that's coherent I think that's a very mixed thing. In my experience, we'll talk most recently about my experience with uh, with WASPs. Yes, there is a, a reasonably clear, and I hope, uh, based on some of the more recent work that we've been doing, a more and more coherent curriculum for players uh, that integrates lots of different elements of performance and provides uh, appropriate levels of developmental challenge when uh, at the, for the right person at the right time. I think that's a really interesting distinction because you're right. As soon as you said curriculum, I was like, okay, style of play, tactics of play and stuff. But the experiential one I think would be really interesting is like, actually, can we plan what experiences look like over a year? And you might be able to work some tech tech around it. But actually, if you know, this period might be real high stretch. So then you'll, you try and facilitate your games program to be high stretch. Or this one might be, we want it to be, um, really really creative experimental periods so actually can we create our topics and our games program to allow them to explore and be creative and feel like there's an environment and the coaches have then got to buy into that in a particular way so i think that's a really interesting distinction you made between your syllabus and curriculum and why there might be a bit of benefit down down that space and also look at let's say we'll use a football example um, I think that there's lo I think there are some really interesting things going on in academy football that I don't think are going on elsewhere. So we had the four four two four three three discussion earlier. Now it might be as an academy we take a view that we're going to play in a particular formation every uh, every phase every age group, and we might have pretty solid reasons for that. It becomes quite a narrow um, and quite focused curriculum where we get we might become very good or ve uh, very. Um, doing things in one way or we could go really broad and nobody does this but we'll change formation every week and everyone change position every week um, everyone will have lots of different experiences and um, uh, we'll play futsal on a Monday we'll play whatever through the week and we'll just go really broad most people operate somewhere in the middle of that and I, I think it, it's it's more it's less about um, because the tech tack is a fundamental part of my experience. Where do I spend more time in my journey? What am I better at? And uh, if I stay doing things that I'm technically, tactically very good at, well, that's my experience of the, uh, that's my developmental experience. And it's lacing everything together so that your the idea that you, you put forward about Right. If we have some, let's say in your, let's say in your context, we're playing Cat 2, Cat 3 academies for a block of time. And what we're going to do is we're going to have an experimental block. We're going to play in lots of different ways here and we're going to test our tactical adaptability. That might, uh, that's a perfectly appropriate approach. It just means that it also requires coaches, administrators, academy managers, all of that to be on the same page. It, and it becomes a more systemic approach to coaching than just what the coach does when they walk on the grass. 
and a lot of organizing because I imagine when when I'm going into the ops department going you know those games that women have actually could we swap could we swap yeah. those and they're the go well you're now causing us a headache for about seven age groups across the academy but yeah let me see what I can do but if you're talking about potential best practice for the experiences of the kids that may be a good avenue to go down because actually it might be that um, you know, you're giving them exposure to different different uh, areas. I know that I've said this before on the podcast, but if you looked at the England national team a couple of years ago on my A license, we were discussing this, and all of them came through Cat Two and Cat Three academies. Um, so you had like uh, Jordan Pickford, I think, was Sunderland. You had Harry Maguire and Carl Walker at um, Sheffield United. John Stones at Barnsley. Um, I can't remember who the other person was. Um, actually, it was Luke Shaw. He was the only one who had had been via that route. And the question then came up, well, how come none of your perceived big hitters were producing defenders? And a, a conclusion we came up with, which could be wrong, could be right, was actually they didn't get exposure of having to defend because they were invariably the stronger teams. They had loads of opportunities to build the attack and create and whatnot. But when it then came to a situation when you're playing Neymar or Ronaldinho or Ronaldo or whoever, they hadn't had the exposure of being under sustained pressure of defending all the time, which presented different challenges. So actually, if, if, you know, if some of those top teams went, you know what, we're going to make this really hard for them and it may just be for a two-month block playing other top, top teams or... They're going to play up two age groups. So naturally, we are going to lose a lot of games during this time, but that's fine. Experientially, you might create a more holistic individual who has experienced more than just playing out from the back, being able to do double scissors and knowing if we're beginning to lose, we'll just give the ball to our mate in midfield who just runs the game and scores a load of goals and we win. Oh, and um, and that, and uh, obviously in the real world there are limitations to what you can and can't do there. But as you've just talked about, there are some really interesting ways that I think that academies can play with that idea. Um, and I can't offer an opinion on um, uh, on the extent to which defenders are being developed by Cat One academies. I know that's a big talking point. Um, but you might go right. Well, I've, the other another reason I've heard for it is that every academy plays through the thirds, and um, isn't uh, aren't facing enough uh, they're not facing long balls they're not I can't offer a view on it I don't know but if you're going uh, depending on the type of uh, desired outcome you want what are the academy's intentions for impact then you might manipulate things to uh, to to give players different experiences it just depends ultimately what you want what the academy wants um and uh, going back to your original question about questions that might want to be answered is suddenly we start seeing challenge in a far, far broader sense than, say, what uh, a lot of the current literature would show, which would might focus on particular variables. And I think that is one of the most interesting areas that is out there at the moment. Perfect. So coming back to what you mentioned, your time at WASP and stuff, when you're looking at um yeah the academy said did did you have like a set these are the characteristics that we'd like our players to have and if you did were they tech tech stuff or were they more psychological what what did that look like uh so this depends a little bit because um i don't think that there is no um here are the characteristics that 
uh, and the same in my experience at Leicester, same with my experience at Wasps. There is no, these are the prerequisite characteristics that we need a player to have before they join. Same, there is no prerequisite for players who might leave um, because I don't think that it particularly, probably in football as well, I don't think that there is enough evidence to support any assertion that here is the, at the moment anyway, that here are the, here is the base level, minimum level of X, whatever X is that a player needs in order to progress. Um, do we do we use profiling methods with players to understand where they currently are? Where do we want them to be in five to 10 years time? And then implement a development planning process against that? Absolutely, yes. And I think that's the perhaps a key difference. And when you're looking at that profiling, how hard is it to future proof it? Because um, again, I'm going to try and use some some rugby knowledge here. So please excuse me if this goes completely left field. Um, but going back to the time that I used to watch quite a lot of rugby, you had Christian Wade, um, who was playing at Wasp at the time, who was you know electric. Every time he gets the ball, got the ball. He would go past people. And then at Bath, you had Matt Banahan. And they were almost complete opposites in terms of thing, but play very similar positions. Now, in rugby, I appreciate there's fluidity in terms of, you know, you might go for only your locks going into line out, but actually other people, they might put their six in there, which presents different mismatches and stuff. But when you're trying to future-proof individuals to be able to play rugby in 10 years' time, how hard is it to figure out what that might actually look like with the level of variability and how one player can come in and think like uh, Michael Hooper, I think from Australia, who came in relatively small in the, uh, in the scrum, but his ability to get around the pitch and be dynamic kind of presented a lot of issues for packs and stuff. So how, how challenging is that for people within the game to actually look at players and go, I'm going to try and give you the tools that I think are going to be there, but it could change so quickly that we might be going down a wrong path or wrong avenue. Well, this is, and this this comes to the heart of what I was talking about with curriculum knowledge, which is uh, we've got to have almost a, uh, we've got to be able to take a view on what might be needed in the future. In my opinion, rugby union hasn't changed that much in, uh, like hasn't fundamentally changed. There's been, there's no revolution in the game in, in where it has been or where it was. Um, what has happened is that it's uh, gradually evolved and it's become uh, players are now no bigger necessarily. They are leaner, they're quicker, they are fitter, and they tend, they're typically more skillful. So there is no massive revolution that's gone on. So I think you, you're perfectly capable of reasoning from where the game is now. Um, there may well be law changes that come in that change that. One would be tackle height and whether tackle height starts affecting attacking play. And I think it'd be pretty clear that from that you could reason uh, that if you're developing a player now who can't offload, you probably want to be developing players who can do that. The clearest example I can give you is uh, when I was at Leicester, I had the privilege of coaching Freddie Stewart, who's now uh, he's now making a, a very good career for himself. And we looked at what Freddie could do really well. And he was uh, he's six foot five. Uh, he's a fullback, and he is outstanding in the air. Uh, and um, we looked at what might stop him. Uh, and there were some physical attributes that may well have stopped him. And we just implemented a dual strategy, one where we make them absolute most of what he is good at. 
what you might call a performance factor. This is what's going to distinguish him at the very highest level. And then we look at a hygiene factor, which might be he needs to be good enough. He needs to be good enough in this particular physical regard, because if he isn't, that's going to stop him. And I think that you can look at you can apply that to a Christian way to a Matt Vanahan. You've got a very, very small player who is incredibly good with his feet and you've got a very big player. And you can reason from an individual basis. And ultimately, in some situations, some coaches will pick Christian Wade, but not Matt Banahan and vice versa. That's uh, where the needs of the club and the needs of the individual might diverge a bit. Apologies, my dog just in that was about to go, but she's just stopped, which is really good timing. Um, but no, I, I I think that makes complete sense. And I guess the the question for me off the back of that is, for those players that you've seen progress and, you know, I'm fortunate enough, I've worked with players now that are in and around our, our B team, first team and stuff. For you, for someone like a Freddie Stewart, et cetera, as well, is there anything that those players that have gone on to progress have had a common thread on in terms of their character or techniques or skills that you've got actually, the ones that have managed to kick on and get a good career out of the game, be that a professional level or playing for England or Lions, etc. Is there any common threads that you can see that they, they've, they've all had in that space? Um, in some positions in rugby union, uh, there are anthropometric factors, physical factors that you can't get around. Um, so uh, of players that I've seen progress in certain positions, there is a base minimum level of size that people need to have. And there is very little getting around that. Um, if I looked at a, broad fact, a broader thing, um, the number one thing that I've seen, and literally would support this as well, is I've never seen a player progress who wasn't mentally outstanding in at least a couple of areas. And I'll be quite specific when I say this. I don't necessarily mean somebody who just trains really hard all the time. I mean, they've got the capacity in a couple of areas, whether that be their ability uh, to, uh, we'll call it perform under pressure, but let's say focus and distraction control. They're outstanding at that and that they have worked to develop that. Um, I've never seen somebody progress who hasn't had a breadth of mental skill sets, but being outstanding in at least a couple of areas. Perfect. And last question for me, because I'm conscious of time and making sure that you're, you're, you're ready for your next meeting, which is if I were to speak to the, the coaches you work with or the students that you support or the players that you coach, and ask them to describe you in three words, how would you hope they would describe you and why? Um, uh, after abusing me for a little bit, um, I would imagine that, well, this is what I would hope. I would hope people say that I really cared. I cared about them and I cared about and helping them in the long term. That would be the number one thing. Uh, the second thing I hope is that people regard me as being competent at what I do. Um, and uh, if I get both of those things, even with uh, a hefty amount of abuse, then I'd, I'll be very happy. Perfect. Listen, Jamie, really appreciate your time. I think a brilliant conversation into the the, the mix between academia and practice and, and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, really appreciate your time. And hopefully we can catch up again soon. Real pleasure, Michael. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.